going to be stepping out for the next month for seven out of our series where we've been working through the book of Acts. And instead, we are going to be focusing on uh, preparing our hearts for Christmas. That's what Advent's all about. You heard my wife, Kathy, kind of explaining the heart of Advent. It is a time of preparing our hearts, a time of preparation, both to celebrate the first coming of Jesus Christ some 2,000 years ago when he was born in a barn and, and you know, kind of altered our world irrevocably. And then also, it is a time of preparing our hearts and looking forward to his second coming when he will return again. And what we're going to do over the course of this month is each Sunday, we're going to look at a different uh, group of people, uh, different characters that actually participated in the Christmas story. And what we're going to find over and over is God uses some really unlikely people to bring about his purpose and his plans. And today, we're going to look at an older couple a guy named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 1. Now, Luke is the same person who wrote the book of Acts. And Acts really is kind of part two. Feeling a little bit... Uh, Sam, if you could bring down... I'm feeling a little tinny right now. And it's not because of my nasal... Anybody else been sneezing lately? It. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's because people have cats. If you guys could all get rid of your cats, <laughs> life would be so much more comfortable for those of us. <laughs> You're going to get me a cat? Or a tennis racket? Cat get tennis racket? Anyway, moving on. Tis the season to, to, to make fun of people who love cats, apparently. So we are, are going to be looking at Zechariah and Elizabeth, but we're going to be doing so through the book of Luke. Luke is the only, at least from my awareness, is the only non-Jewish author of one of the books of the Bibles. And he wrote two, the book of Luke, uh, the gospel of Luke, and then the uh, epistle of Acts, that's basically a continuation. And he explains the heart behind it. In, in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of things that have been fulfilled amongst us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So Luke himself wasn't an eyewitness. What he did, because he was a, he was a physician, he was a doctor, he was used to doing research, he said, I'm going to go and interview all of the eyewitnesses. I want to know what they saw. I want to know what they experienced. I want to know what it was like to be there. And so he interviewed everybody who was still alive at the time of his writing of this gospel. And so I'm sure that he interviewed Zechariah and Elizabeth amongst many, many others in order to put this together. And he says that with that in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning of the end, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, who's the person that he has kind of been writing this for. We believe that Theophilus is probably his sponsor that was helping support him as he was doing his research, so that you might know with certainty the things that have been taught. And he dives right in to the coming of the Messiah, God's anointed Redeemer. But he doesn't begin with the birth of Jesus. He actually backs it up a little bit to this couple. We're introduced to Zechariah and Elizabeth in verse 5. He says, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. 
So we've learned a lot of stuff, God bless you. We've learned a ton of information just in that first introductory paragraph about this couple. First off, he's grounded this in the context of when it happened. He said that this all took place in the time of Herod, king of Judea. That would be like us saying it was in the time of Ronald Reagan, the 40th president of the United States. It just grounds it in the historical context so that his readers would know the time frame we're talking about. And he says, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. So if you are familiar with kind of the way that the the people of Israel were divided up, there were 12 tribes. Aaron was the priestly tribe. And within the priestly tribe, basically how it went is they did not inherit land when they came into the promised land. Instead, they inherited the role of getting to serve God in the temple or in the tabernacle initially. And then when the temple was built, they're in the temple. And so every male who became of age became a priest, and Zechariah is one of those. Well, at this time, Zechariah is one of 18,000 priests, we believe, give or take, uh, in the priestly tribe of Aaron. 18,000 who are basically being told, you get to represent God and serving in the temple. But obviously, that's way too many people for them to be able to all serve in the temple. And so they decided, we're going to divide the, the tribe of Aaron uh, into 24 different divisions. The eighth division of which Zechariah was a part, the, the division of Abijah, Uh, That was his division, and what would happen is each of these divisions, two times a year for one week at a time, so basically for two weeks out of the year, each of these divisions would come to Jerusalem, and they would serve at the temple. They were the priests overseeing everything. But when you divide 18,000 by 24, you still end up with about 750 priests in each division, which means that whenever there were needs within the temple, there were way more priests to do the work than there were needs in the temple. And so they came up with another creative way to divide the labor. All of the priests would pray. They would spend the whole week that they were on praying. But whenever there was a need, maybe you needed to put new oil in the menorah. Maybe you needed to change out the showbread, which happened once a day. Maybe you needed to put new incense on the altar of incense. They would draw lots, which is the same as basically like drawing straws, to decide who got to go in and do that. And because there were so many priests it was very seldom that somebody's name got called. It might be a once-in-a-lifetime kind of opportunity to actually walk into the temple rather than just being, spending your week praying. To actually get to go into the temple and serve in some way might be a once-in-a-lifetime kind of thing. But we read in verse 8, Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, so this is during one of his one-week Uh, service projects in Jerusalem. He was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord to burn incense. This is a big deal. This might be the only time in his life he gets to do this. And when it came time for the burning of incense, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Zechariah walks in with the incense. He goes to that. but, But today, burning incense is not going to be the most exciting thing that's going to happen to him. Because something far more uh, unexpected is going to happen. Verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. As I read scripture, every time somebody encounters an angel, this typically is their response. 
fear, dread, like, oh my goodness, which is, it's kind of funny, but every time an angel speaks to somebody, the first thing off the angel's lips are, don't be afraid, right? You have to like remind them, you don't have to fear me. Maybe it's like every time that Rich, when he was in his uniform, talked to somebody, like, don't be afraid, I just came to talk to you. Right, Rich? Yeah, okay, moving on. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear, but the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. The Holy Spirit will come upon him. He is to be my representative. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So first off, the angel says, don't be afraid, okay? I, I come bearing good news. And then he tells Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. What prayer is he talking about? Now, on the surface, the first impulse would be to say, well, obviously, it's the prayer that he and Elizabeth had been praying for decades, that they would have a child, right? But we also have to keep in mind the fact that Zechariah has been spending that week in his priestly duties, and as a priest, he would be praying daily for Israel. He would be praying for God's long-awaited Messiah to come, for God's continued provision for his people, probably for his help in overcoming the, the, uh, the Roman occupiers. And so there's a couple of different prayers that Zechariah has brought. And the beautiful part of the angel's response to him is we don't have to choose which prayer he's actually answering. Because in answering this prayer, he's answering both of them. On the one hand, he's saying you're going to have a child that you have longed for. And on the other hand, he's saying this child will be the long-awaited forerunner of the Messiah. We have to keep in mind, and it's something that that second song that we were, we were singing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, was reminding us of. It's something that Brad reminded us of, that for 400 years, God had pretty much been silent. But just prior to him going silent, in the book of Malachi, or for those of you who are of Italian descent, you might call him Malachi, uh, in, in the book of Malachi, there were a couple of moments where, the pro, where Malachi prophesied that God would send a forerunner to, to prepare the way of the Lord. Can we throw Malachi 3 up there? So this is Malachi 3, verses 1 through 2. He says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then, suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. He goes on from there to say, but who can stand on that day? Because I will come as a refiner to purify the priests, the Levites. I'm, it, this is not going to be a time where it's going to be comfortable. I'm going to, that, that when the Messiah comes, he will come to challenge his people. It's interesting that they overlooked that when they were looking for their Messiah. Let's go to the next one. This is, this is, these are the, actually the very last verses of the Old Testament. The very last words of Malachi. Speaking for God, he says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. 
He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Those are the final words of the Old Testament. And then for 400 years there was silence. And the people of Israel waited and waited. Generation after generation waited and and yearned For the forerunner of the Messiah to come and prepare the way so that the Messiah could finally come and redeem the people. That God could throw off the yoke of the oppressive Rome or whoever it was that was attacking them. That God would come and rescue his people. They waited and they waited and they waited. And now suddenly, as Zechariah, who was a man who is up there in his years, he's almost to the age where he's going to be retiring out of this role, and he and his wife have long given up the hope of ever having a child. Suddenly the angel is there, and he's not simply saying, you're going to have a child, but he's suggesting this child is the one that was prophesied 400 years ago by Malachi, that will be the forerunner who will come in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the way to turn fathers' hearts back to their children and children's hearts back to their parents and to prepare the people so that when the Messiah comes, he will find a people who are prepared to go with him. Verse 18. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I mean, I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. I think that's a fair question, wouldn't you say? I mean, you're past the age of childbearing, your wife is barren, you've kind of given up all hope, you don't have a child at all, how on earth is our child that's non-existent going to be preparing the way? And the angel said to him, I'm Gabriel, enough said, okay? Do you, in other words, do you know who I am and do you know what I do? I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now... You will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their appointed time. In other words, shh. I kind of feel like that's a little bit harsh. The guy asks an honest and real question like, hey, your your son is going to go ahead and be the predecessor of the Messiah, the long-awaited one that comes with the heart of of Elijah. And you're like, "Um, point of order, I don't actually have a child, and my wife's way too old to have children, so how's that going to work? And he's like, okay, you know what? Because I said so, because I'm Gabriel. Now don't talk again until it happens. And and I'm left going, okay, is he punishing him for having this question? Or is this more preparation? And I would suggest that it's a little bit of both. Yes, certainly, he's saying, because you didn't trust and believe that God can do what I said, you're going to be silent. But also, it gives Zechariah nine months to sit and ponder what this actually means, that his wife will have a child and he will come with the spirit of Elijah to prepare the way of the people. He has nine months to ponder. And it's almost as if Gabriel is saying, just sit back, zip it, and watch what God is going to do. Because if God says he's going to do something, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So now just watch God move. Verse 31. I'm sorry, verse 21. 
Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. I mean, normally you would just go in, you would offer the incense, you would come back out, you would give the traditional blessing, may may the Lord keep you and bless you, may he cause his face to shine upon you and all that. This would be the traditional blessing that they would give. And yet, when, when Zechariah came out, he could not speak to them. He could not give the traditional blessing. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. And when the time of service was completed, he returned home. But he couldn't talk. So he couldn't tell his wife all that had happened, what he had seen. So Kat, see, I'm not the only husband that forgets to tell his wife what happened at work when he gets home. Admittedly, that Zechariah did have a better excuse than I forgot. But still, the, the struggle is real. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. I don't know why she stayed in hiding, whether it was like, is this for real or whether she was just afraid she might have a miscarriage so she was just trying to be really safe. But for five months, she remained in seclusion with Zechariah standing silently with her preparing. And, the Lord, and she thought, the Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace amongst the people. I love, by the way, the really personal little details that you can only know because Luke has actually interviewed Elizabeth and interviewed Zechariah and, and, and has learned the details of what happened. Now jump down with me to verse 57. There's a lot that happens in between this. We're going to look at some of that next week. But we're going to jump nine months ahead to when the baby is actually born. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Remember, in this day and age, they wouldn't have had the ability to find out what the gender was until the baby was born. So they find out we're having a boy, which is really good because the angel told us to name him John. That would have been awkward if it was a little girl. Her neighborhoods and re- I'm sorry, her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. Now, I just want you to put yourselves in Zechariah's sandals for just a moment, because he still at this point can't speak. All he can do is hold this child that God promised, or an angel promised, would be coming to him nine months before. All he can do is hold this child. And consider the ramifications of his birth. An angel promised that he would be born and that he would come with the spirit of Elijah, the one that Malachi had prophesied would come to prepare the way of the Messiah. God is up to something and he's going to do it through this little baby boy. Holy crud, I better not drop him. At least that's what I would be thinking. And then on the eighth day, They came to circumcise the child. So what would happen is on the eighth day for every little boy that was born, they would circumcise that child as a tangible reminder of the covenant that God had made with Moses on Mount Sinai that I am setting you apart as my people and I will be your God. The the rite of circumcision was a very important one for the Jews because it was a way of setting themselves apart. Apparently, that wasn't something that they did regularly in that day and age. But he said, I want you to do this as a tangible sign, a marking of your body saying, I belong to the Lord. Thankfully, today we baptize. It's a little different, all right? But it was, it was tantamount to wearing a wedding ring with God saying, I belong to you. You are my God. And so on the eighth day, they would circumcise the, the male children. And on the eighth day... They would also name the child. 
And traditionally, you would name that child after either the father or after a relative, but that's not what happens here. So on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah, as is tradition. But his mother spoke up and said, no, 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 he's going to be called John. And they said to her, there's no one amongst your relatives who has that name. That's not how it works. That's not tradition. And if you've seen Fiddler on the Roof, tradition is kind of important. They made a whole song about it. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child, and he asked for a writing tablet. And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. So both Zechariah and Elizabeth are incredibly faithful to God. They trust him, and in this, they once again declare their trust in him by saying, we're going to name this child John, even though it flies in the face of tradition, even though it flies in the face of what peer pressure is going on in our family and friends. They all want us to name him one thing, we're naming him John. What the people didn't realize is that name John was incredibly fitting because the the name John actually means God is gracious. And God was being gracious. He was being gracious to Zechariah and Elizabeth by giving them their child, even when they had kind of given up hope that would ever happen. And he was being incredibly gracious to Israel by answering what had been prophesied 400 years before. God was on the move. And he was going to be using John as one that would prepare the way. Immediately after he wrote that his name is John, Zechariah's mouth was open and his tongue was set free and he began to speak, praising God. And all the neighbors were filled with awe and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all of these things. And everyone who heard the story wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand is with him. So word starts getting out. Because this is, it's not normal that a, a priest would walk in. He would be a talker walking into the temple, and he would come out, be completely silent, and for nine months he'd be silent. And in, 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 in their old age, all of a sudden, the same priest who is silent would suddenly, he and his wife would find that they're going to have a child. And then when the child is born, they totally go off script, and they name him a name that is not even part of their kind of family lineage. And then all of a sudden, the dad starts talking again. What is going on? People start talking all over. What is this child going to be? Because this isn't how things work. They begin to wake up to the narrative that Zechariah and Elizabeth have had some inkling of for the last nine months. God is on the move. He's up to something. For 400 years, we've been waiting, and now all of a sudden, it seems like God is moving again. And then Zechariah bursts into kind of a poetic song here in verse 67. We read, His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied this, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation For us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And then he turns his eyes to his infant son and he says, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. 
For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us, for us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the path of peace. Now, I don't know about you, but unless it's a Disney movie, people don't typically burst into song. Right? Or, or poetry or whatever you want to call this. They don't begin to prophesy. That's not normal. But also what's not normal is somebody spending nine months in complete and utter silence, pondering what, what this all meant. So he's had nine months to consider the ramifications of the fact that his wife is pregnant. She's having a child. God said it would happen. It's happening. God even named him. He said nine months to consider the implications of this. And so when he begins to speak, he pours out of those nine months of silence in a, in a song of gratitude. And remember, he also has the Holy Spirit kind of guiding him along in this. And what he says is really interesting to me that he doesn't actually begin by focusing on his boy, even though his son is the impetus for this song. What he does is he begins by focusing on God. And more importantly, he, he points past his son to the one God has promised to send, the long-awaited Messiah. Or in, so that's the Hebrew word Messiah. It simply means anointed one. And in Greek, the same word is Christ. It simply means God's anointed redeemer, the one that they've been waiting for for generations, for four centuries. And he says, God, you are going to save us. God, you are doing what you promised so long ago that you would do. You're doing it here and now. And then and only then does he look at his son and say, and you are going to play the part of the one that prepares the way for the Lord to come. But even in the midst of this, even as he's guided along by the Holy Spirit, one of the interesting things I notice in here is that Zechariah has carried with him some expectations that are somewhat False. He's carried in the expectations that all of the Jews held of the Messiah, namely that that Messiah would come to overthrow their earthly enemies. And I'm sure in the back of his mind, he's thinking, Rome, you are going to be the predecessor of the Messiah. And when the Messiah comes, he's going to once and for all throw off the yoke of Rome, and we are going to be a free nation again, and it'll be good news for Jews. What he doesn't recognize is that what Jesus was going to come to do, what the Messiah was really going to come and do, the enemy the Messiah was going to come and overthrow was not a political enemy. It was a spiritual enemy. Started in a garden, the serpent, and we know him as Satan. That was the enemy. And, and sin and death that had come from the first act of disobedience from Adam and Eve, that had driven a wedge between humanity the image bearers, and the one whose image they bore, the one who had created them to be his representatives. And what the Messiah was going to come and do is to reunite God's image bearers with himself, come and reestablish their relationship. That was the enemy. The sin and death, the separation between God, that was the enemy that Jesus was going to overcome. And Zechariah is thinking too small. He's thinking political. And it's just a reminder for me that no matter how old, no matter how wise, no matter how, no matter how many years we choose to follow God and how much time we spend in His Word, we all still have a lot to learn. I still have a ton to learn. 
We should never just sit back and think, I understand God. I got him wired. He's going to show up in a burning bush because that's how he rolls. No, he's only done that once that I'm aware of. God shows up in, in very different ways, in very personal ways. And the moment you think you've got God figured out, you start to put him in a box, that's the moment you begin to limit him in your mind. And sometimes it takes a rude awakening like an angel showing up or, or God working completely outside of the box because we don't want to miss him. And then we read in verse 20, uh, we read in verse 80, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly in Israel. So although word had gotten out and people were talking about, what does all of this mean? It's not until about 25 to 30 years later that God is going to use John the Baptist to really begin setting the stage for Jesus' entry into ministry. And so for about 25 to 30 years, he spends time in the wilderness just growing in wisdom, growing in his trust and his willingness to follow the Spirit, even when the Spirit prompts him to do things that are somewhat antisocial. So John is going to enter back into the story later on, much later on. But, but what I'm left with this morning, and I always ask this question, whenever I'm reading Scripture, I go, so what? Like, it's interesting, and I love learning about it, but so what? How does this actually intersect our lives? What should we do with this? Well, what I'm reminded of this morning is not only that Zechariah and Elizabeth, who are very faithful men and women, or a very faithful man and woman, still have a lot to learn about God, and that God still works, and that's one thing. But I think probably an even more important thing for us to recognize is that God used a very unlikely couple to bring about his purpose and his plans. They would not have been the kind of people you would have expected to bring into this world the forerunner of the Messiah. And yet God used them anyway. And they are just one of a large company of very unlikely characters that God used to bring about his purpose and his plans, which reminds me, that as we stand in this in-between that Kathy talked about earlier, the in-between of Jesus has already come, he's already been born, that's what we celebrate in Christmas. That's happened 2,000 years ago. The Messiah has come. His name was Jesus. He was born to a carpenter and a virgin girl in some podunk backwater called, uh, called Nazareth. That's where they were from. That's where he grew up. And we live in between that and the day that God has promised that he will send his son. And let's not forget, Gabriel already had to silence somebody because he questioned whether or not God could actually do what he said he was going to do. And God himself said, I'm going, but I'm going to come back in the same way that I went. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Jesus said he's coming back, and so we better take him at his word unless we want to zip it for a little bit, right? So... Jesus has said, I'm coming back. We stand in this in-between time. He's come once, he's coming again. And when he comes back, he's going to fully establish, fully kind of bring to completion the kingdom of God where every tear will be dried and brokenness will be no more, where our bodies will cease to break down and we will get to spend eternity with God, working, laboring alongside of him just like God intended way back in Genesis 1. But in this in-between time, we, kind of like Zechariah and Elizabeth, find ourselves living in a broken, sin-scarred world. We find ourselves surrounded by pretenders to the throne. 
Only instead of it being Caesar, our pretenders to the throne are things like political parties or um, companies that want to sell you stuff because if you don't have this product, you can't be happy. So you need, to, you need to accumulate more. And you should probably do it either on Black Friday or Cyber Monday because you can get it at a discount, right? And we live in a day and an age where there are so many things competing for our attention and so many things clamoring for our worship. And God has said, no, 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 no. I am God. And you are my children. I've taken you no longer slaves to sin. I've broken those chains, and I've adopted you into my family. I've given you my Holy Spirit. You're now part of the family. But it's not only good news for you, because this is good news of great joy for all mankind. And so now that I have given you my Holy Spirit, I'm going to turn you around and send you back out to be my ambassadors of hope to this hurting, sin-scarred world that you find yourself living in, where bodies break down and people that we love die, where marriages blow up, and people that we thought we could trust abuse that trust and hurt our hearts deeply, where we struggle to have enough to be able to survive, or sometimes we struggle to have enough to get what we want, to, to feel like we're comfortable. And into the midst of this messy, murky, sin-scarred world, God sends us to be his ambassadors of hope. To, to take the good news that we have found of great joy and to, I, I think the, way, the best way I like to say it lately is we get to presence the love of Jesus in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools, not just proclaim it. We get to actually live as ambassadors of hope through the way that we love people. That is what you and I get to do. And just like Zechariah and Elizabeth, just like Mary and Joseph, just like the shepherds, we are imperfect we won't do it perfectly. We're undeserving completely. But God chooses to use us anyway because then he gets the glory, not us. And so I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up and we're going to spend a few moments thanking God for using imperfect vessels like us. But I love the fact that we live in that in-between time and we get to be ambassadors of hope. So let me just go ahead and pray. Father God, I am grateful for the ways you love us. I'm grateful for the ways you redeem us. I'm grateful for the ways you provide what we need, even when things seem impossible. And I'm grateful that you are faithful. When you say you're going to do something, you do it. It may not necessarily happen in our timeline. It certainly often doesn't happen in the way that we anticipate. God, I pray that we would not become so hyper-fixated on how you need to move that we miss it when you actually do move. And God, we thank you that you don't just call us your sons and your daughters, you call us your ambassadors, your representatives, and we get to take this good news of great joy for everyone back out beyond the walls of this place, into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces, into our schools. May you help yourself to our lives. And I pray that the hope that we have found in you would shine just as brightly as the, the lights that we use to light our homes and the ways that we love people would, would shout louder than the, the songs that we sing this Christmas. We pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Let's worship together.